Welcome to this episode of Right Stuff, presented by me, Chris Fitzgerald, and produced by Daniel O'Connor through the Head Stuff Podcast Network. In this episode, I spoke with the great Colm Tobin. There's not much introduction needed here, I suppose, other than to say that I spoke to Colm at Listole Writers Week, which he is the president of, and we started by talking about that. So please like, share, subscribe, review, and enjoy the podcast. Colm, thanks a million for talking to us. Uh, we're here at Listole Writers Week. You're the president of Listole Writers Week. Can you tell us a bit about the importance of a week like this for not just writers, I suppose, but readers as well, and about your own role here? Oh, I think it's something that's grown, um, but Listole was one of the pioneers of it, mm. which is the idea that um, of, of sort of matching um, people who are interested in books with people who want to see events around books. You know, there people have their book clubs, their book groups, but uh, trying to make something that's silent and that's often done in great solitude, you know, to make it social for at least a small amount of time. And so this has been a place, I think, Listowel, where a lot of Irish writers have got to know each other and where you meet people for the first time. And I think I came here first in, I can't think it was a 78 or was a 79. And... Uh, Certainly, it's the whole way the town is configured and uh, the, the enthusiasm. Mm. And, uh, it's made for it, isn't it? The square. And the and way, also, the way that, you know, changes have been made, but they've been made gradually. Um, it isn't as though people became overambitious because it's an intimacy that you need to preserve, that you can come here and you can meet an awful lot of people. And, I mean, I know that at one stage I, I was teaching a class and uh, one of the students, this was his holiday, he would take the week off work and come to the stole and then a lot of his life the rest of the year was people he'd met in the stole nice. you know who'd been in workshops with him yeah. and um so yeah it's um and, and uh, you know it's it's um it, it uh, it's it's um there's a sort of intimacy in how the, how the town works and also the idea in north kerry of story of song of almost everyone having some talent yeah. Um, that is in the air. Yeah, there's some so there's nothing. So there's nothing rarefied about the idea of publishing a book, or of writing a song, or of writing a poem. It's um, absolutely part of. It, it's it's a normal part of life. Yeah. So that here, culture is rich. Yeah, it's not that just it, underground. It's, that it's visible. Uh, yeah, and not just rarefied. You know, not just something that people in Dublin might do. I think. They feel that it's people in Dublin don't do it. It's people in North Kerry do it. Right, yeah, the elitism is gone, I yeah, think. Yeah. Um, so, but for yourself then as well, you spoke about the social aspect of it and I was just at a lovely talk that you did there. You had the room in the palm of your hand for an hour mm. and something like that where you're seeing faces and there's kind of instant feedback, there's applause, there's a bit of laughter as opposed to the solitude of you writing. It's a very different kind of feeling, isn't it, for you? Yeah, and also it, it, there are times when you need to formulate what it is you're doing, you know, where... You just don't know, and, and you're working so tentatively. And sometimes, if you're answering a question, you can say, ah, oh, I think I know I think I know what the answer to that is. But I've never said it before, or thought it before. And so it's sort of useful in that way. You know? So would something like that eventually end up in writing as well? Does it formulate um, thoughts in a way that you I might think, get a paper? I think anything that clarifies your thought is good for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how much time are you spending in Ireland these days, Colin? I, I come and go. I teach um, at Columbia University yeah. one semester a year. So that's 14 weeks. Hmm. And um, I mean, it's not backbreaking. I teach on a Monday and Tuesday. So it leaves me time. You spend time in Spain done. as well? Yeah, I spend, I, spend, I spend time in Spain. But I come and go, you know, it's... it's um, 
Does that affect your perspective on the kind of change of the country then? When you're, when you're away for a while and you come back, is it like... You see, I lived here for so long yeah. um, that I, I don't really... I felt I got a pretty good perspective of the, on the country, mm. you know. And uh, there's nothing that surprises me, really. Because you did speak earlier about the kind of change that's happening. It's not the, it's not the kind of deep change. It's, yeah, it's surface change uh, yeah. or something. I mean, I'm reading stuff at the moment and thinking, I don't think that's fully true, mm. that the country has changed fundamentally. I think a certain th- things have changed. I think it's a much freer country to be a child in. Um, you know, the, 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 abolishment, the abolition of corporate punishment was a huge event. And I think children are happier and they're going to school is happy. It's a happier experience, you know. Yeah. It's a very important thing. Yeah. And I think women's lives have changed and gay people's lives have changed. Well, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, yeah. yeah so and obviously men's lives have changed too. So yeah, there's, I think there's a greater freedom. People mm. tend to do what they like uh, in a way that they, 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 certainly in the past, mm. people were more restricted. And people put an awful lot of blame on the previous unhappiness on the Catholic Church, uh, which almost seems to kind of get too much blame, in my opinion, I think. Yeah, you touch? Uh, um, well, I suppose, you know, the... the the, I mean, the idea in Enniscorthy of where I'm from, mm. that there would be, a, you know, on Monday night, a women's confraternity, Tuesday, men's confraternity, children's confraternity. There was no end to benedictions and confraternities and priests booming out things and, um, mm-hmm. and confession. And um, it, was as though, it was as though you spent your time either coming to the church or going to the church. And... Um, uh, you know, and priests did have this sense of self-importance in bishops. Mm. And uh, so I suppose all that was there. It didn't mean that the local doctor wasn't a similar sort of nuisance. Uh, doctors have become much more just ordinary people doing their job. It was yeah. a time when, oh, a doctor. You wouldn't, if a doctor came into the room, oh, now. You know, so there was a sense of the doctor and the priest. Yeah. And indeed the bank manager. Kind of hierarchy. You know, the bank manager being some sort of major figure that no one really got to talk to, and uh, and and the solicitor, and they'd be all to be found in the golf club, you know, at their own table, <laughs> and the bank manager's wife. You know, I think <laughs> yeah. all that sort of ended. Yeah, all those characters. The hierarchy I seems to be dissolving. All that you know, hierarchy yeah. really has just. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah. But yeah. something that is lost, I think, is the kind of community aspect that came with the church that, you know, you were saying all these these rituals and these events, but there was the Sunday Mass, which was when all of the community came together. We're looking out in two lovely churches here that would have been the kind of convention points of a community. Yeah. And I wonder if the Saw Doctors did. didn't put an end to that with um, I, I Used to Love Her. You know that song? The, the line that's... Uh, that rhymes ass with mass. Yeah, we used to see her going to Sunday Mass and yeah. sit there watching the glory of her ass. Yeah. And I think once they sang that, really, it put yeah. an end to the whole thing. <laughs> All right, we'll attribute Almost it to the Saw was, Doctors. Everything was going great in Ireland. That's where the Saw Doctors wrote that song. It's a great line, though. Yeah. Um, you did mention, like, a word that came up a bit earlier was recovery. Um, and your recovery is something that comes up in your own writing and something that you've been working through, I feel, in your personal life yeah. that... Yeah. does come into your writing. Yeah. Um, is that something that you're always kind of pushing towards, some kind of recovery from, from grief, from loss, from the early loss of your father, maybe? I mean, I, th- I think that, for example, in Spain, if kids go out on a Saturday night, it, they could sip a beer over the night. But that um, someone getting drunk would be considered a form of neurosis. And f- someone falling over or vomiting or just losing the run of themselves, it, it just wouldn't happen. And um, it isn't as though they're taught this in school, it's part of the culture, but you just wouldn't go out to get blotto. 
the business in northern countries, it's not just Ireland, it happens in Scotland, it happens in, you know, you try Russia, on a, try anywhere in Russia on a Saturday night. People going nuts in northern countries with scarce light, with vodkas and... Uh, so you just sort of wonder about that um, as to what the hangovers are like <laughs> or what the need for that search for oblivion comes from. And it comes from something very deep, I think, and, and, and it's an interesting one. And uh, also, the, um, I think we, we talk here about the rituals around death being very open, you know, but, but they're not. Um, that often people just, um, a family will just close in after somebody dies and not mention them and not know how to handle the thing. And, uh, you know, it, 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 won't seem as, it won't seem like a part of nature or even seem like a part of culture, something to be worked out as just something that people can't really handle, uh, that, that they've lost somebody. Or, and um, it's, um, it's curious. Mm. And uh, so I think there are a whole lot of areas from that thing I was talking about earlier as well, parents' relationship with their children, people living at home and uh, being treated like an you know, adolescent when they could be 28. You know, and uh, with, with, you know, even the way clothes and, you know, you wouldn't have any independence. Mm. And that happened much more during the bust when people ran out of money and they yeah. just couldn't. But um, I was talking about Ivor Brown, the psychiatrist, yeah. talking about the idea that, you know, you have to separate. You, and it almost has to be a ritual. Yeah. Uh, that birth, marriage, death and separation of children, you know, that they go their own way. Yeah. That it has to become part of life, really. You know? I don't notice that even with uh, coming-of-age novels. The coming of age period in somebody's life now in these novels is like 28. <laughs> when it used to be, it used to be teenagers, uh, which is an interesting development yeah, as well. Yeah. And your your recent writing, so House of Names is in front of you there, um, Testament of Mary. You're taking on historical mythological figures. Yeah. Is that? It seems to me, is, is that you trying to challenge yourself as well and push yourself as a writer? Like you, yeah, yeah. It's almost that you run out of road in, mm. in the sense that I'd written a novel called Nora Webster, and uh, but Brooklyn, but more about Nora Webster more than that which is set in Enniscorthy, where I'm from, set in the house where I'm from, set in the family. Mm. And that um, took me a lot of years to write. And once it was over, there was no question of going back into that material. I, I really, everything, everything that's not in the book is not in the book for a reason, uh, that I left it out. And therefore, there was no other way to go. And um, I, there are things I can't write about. I can't, I couldn't write about an, another part of Ireland. Um, I couldn't even, I would find writing about Dublin difficult even. You know, I'm from there, I know how things, I know what the light is like, I know what people are like. I have an idea of that. If I tried to put Kerry's speech into a novel, I would get it wrong. Yeah. I would get something, someone from Kerry would say to me, we don't say that. We, we don't, we, yeah. that, that phrase is not one we use. Yeah. That my ear is not that good, but my memory is good. And, you know, my experience is, is strong and, and, and rooted in the place. Mm. So, um, once that novel was written, then I had to go somewhere else entirely. So going to, you know, a, into ancient territory was just a sort of relief in a way, and, and, a, and a sort of way out. Which must have involved research, though, as well. Yeah, that, not that know. much, actually. No? Maybe I should have done more, but I always feel if you do too much research, you end up writing a sort of research book, right. you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, if you read a book, say, called Homosexuality in Ancient Greece, it seemed to be all they thought about, really, you know, and... Um, Ah, that won't work in the book. <laughs> so I read half that. And didn't bother with it too much. Okay. And do you still? I mean, you've spoken before about the the amount of effort and the the discipline that it takes to write. And um, 
rejection being a part of it and throwing away an awful lot of what you write. Mm. Do you still do that? Is there still an awful lot of what you write that we never will never read? Not really. No. Um, I mean, often first paragraphs and first, par- first paragraphs of chapters that you go over and over. Just a question of getting that right. Um, no, that, that wouldn't really happen anymore now. Mm. Although there is a... Um, there are a few novels that I had started and did a good lot of work on. A few that I don't even know where they are now, you know, and I won't be going back to them. Okay. Yeah. And though the, the places and the contexts of your novels have changed a lot, is there still a common thread through them all that you feel there's... Yeah, I think most writers only have one subject, really. And that just comes out of DNA, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it's like the colour of your eyes or something, you know, you, you know and... Um, if you could fake it if you want, but uh, it'll come back, you know. And uh, um, so I suppose loss, family, connection, intimacy, loss of intimacy, place, those sort of things. Yeah. And your process you were saying earlier as well about you think about the next sentence. And to me, when I was hearing you say that, I was thinking, do you, to what extent do you plan if you're... Oh, I plan everything. You see, yeah. you, see you know the story. But if you start thinking about big things like the jacket of the book or the genre or, you know, some review that someone might write in the future, like all those hard things to do that are really secondary questions uh, rather than just getting the thing down right, yeah. that you're really missing, the, that you've got to concentrate. And you've got to concentrate hard. Yeah. And you've got to not think about anything else, really. What do you do to put yourself in that space? Is there a place where you go? Like no, a you just start. I mean, yeah. in other words, once you've got the book going, the only thing to do is to finish it. And the only way of doing that is to sit down and do it. Mm. And uh, you can often get the first few sentences wrong and you'll know immediately, ah, this, I need to sharpen this, you know. But then you can get a flow. There are days, amazing days. And it's, 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 um, it's, it's very, very like things in sport. Um, if you in tennis, do you play tennis? But no, um, no, I can't but say if it. you play tennis uh, and you think I'm going to hit an ace, okay, you never yeah. do. Yeah, that you hit the ace when you least expect it. Like when somehow the the lack of concentration mm. or the the lack of thinking too deliberately is hitting some sort of inner concentration, and you're actually going to get things right. right. But if you plan that and deliberate too much, you hit the ball out. So is there, a, I mean, a lot of writers talk about flow. Is that what you're kind of describing? Yeah, you well, it's the same thing that? as in sports, where you can yeah. watch somebody having an amazing game. Mm. Yeah, where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, sports people it, do it talk about flow. It doesn't just come from yeah. fitness. It comes from some sort of set of, uh, you know, mental mm. ease occurring on a certain day that wouldn't be there the next day. Yeah. And it happened once. The, uh, sports people often talk about that. They do. Something yeah. that happened once. Yeah. And, uh, and they talk yeah. about, like, I've heard Henry Shefflin talking about this, where he had just this epic game that was, you can't even remember it. You know, every moment of it, it was in a kind of zone and a kind of flow. Yeah. That was a good analogy, I think, for what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, although I suppose with writing, you are always concentrating, but often you, just, often you do have a day or two days where something um, comes right and you're getting a rhythm and the rhythm seems unforced and natural. And it's, yeah, it's a funny process. Yeah. 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 And I also have this book here, A Different Story by Ava Walsh, who has uh, written a kind of, it's a, an analysis and a summary of, Yes. Most of your writing, I think that was 2013. Yeah. Um, so your writing has not only been read, now it's been analysed, it's been studied. Oh, yeah, and how, do, how does that sit with I you? I feel great. <laughs> is it flattering or is it weird? That's flattering. I mean, the, the idea, you see, part of the, I suppose, the, the way books are read now is um, 
they put Brooklyn on the school course at one point and uh, kids had to study it. And God, if, if I'd known that when I was writing it, you know, it's a sort of strange <laughs> process. But also with this, you're reading this thinking, uh, you know, it's, it's far away from the actual work. Yeah. yeah. Because it's, it's, it's becoming a subject rather than... How well someone is writing about it without knowing all the, all the, things, that, all, all the things that went into it. It doesn't mean it's bad. Mm. Um, and uh, it's flattering. It's funny. It, there's no... You see, I think that it's okay for a writer to, to, to have no attention for books for about four books. You know, I think it's better almost that you don't win any prizes or have anyone paying attention. You, write, get, you get about four books out before anyone notices you. Right. But after that, you do need someone to notice you because otherwise you're just going to, you know, there, there is a strange process of wanting to communicate and wanting to be read, wanting an audience, and that if you don't get that, you think there's some barrier between you and people who might be reading your books, mm. I think can just not be good for you generally, really. Because like the criticism, even positive it, it, it criticism. It doesn't mean you need to have a bestseller, mm. but you need to have a sense that as you're working, especially when you go into your 40s or 50s and you, you, you realise you could have been a teacher or you could have been a, you know, you know, a more useful in the world in some way or other, you could have been a, you know, a nurse or something and uh, an accountant and, uh, <laughs> and that you're doing this and that nobody, n nobody cares, you know, because yeah. it is a form of communication. And yeah. So and you do need some sort of attention. Yeah. So the Ava Walsh book is great in that respect. Yeah. So is that one of the things then that you're kind of trying not to think about readers in a way because you're, you're writing for yourself? No, you're not writing for yourself in, uh, after a certain time. Yeah. Probably the beginning you might be, but as I was saying earlier, halfway through a book, you really are making a thing almost in the same way as a carpenter would make something for somebody, for their house, not for your house. It's, it's going to be, it, it's got to fit the shape of their room. Yeah. It's got to fit the shape of their imagination. And so if, if you're only writing for yourself, you never finish anything. Because you think, well, I know the rest. Yeah. So why would I do that? It just wouldn't push you, know, you forward, yeah. You know, and um, it's hard work, so you think, well, not doing it would be lovely some, sometimes. So the whole point is that, that you have a connection, that you're imagining characters, mm. but you're also imagining the reader. How much does the reader need to know now? Does it need to be told one more thing here? Or does the reader need to be left to imagine something? So you're imagining the reader as much as you're imagining the character. Is that, is that part of the process something that comes into rereading your work and editing it a bit more? Is that, are you thinking about that in your first draft? Yeah, if you read over something, mm -hmm. you can often realise um, this is too long, that there's something not clear, um, this is not needed, there's, some, there's another paragraph necessary here, um, because you begin to see it from the reader's perspective. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a very difficult balancing act, isn't it? To, to, to find that point where you know you've um, said enough. And the reason and how, it can be, how you can become better at it is the more you read, just the more you read, the more you become, you sort of begin to live in language and you can see what's wrong if you're reading all the time. So I think as a writer, the more you read, the, the better things are. Yeah, it's the input, isn't it? Input and output. So what's your next challenge, Colm? You've um, I have a book of essays coming in in um, November, I think, um, which is about the father of Yeats, the father of Joyce, and the father of Oscar Wilde, the three fathers. It's called Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know. <laughs> Do they meet? And, uh, um, oh, let me think. Um, um, 
Oh, Yeats's father certainly met Wilde's father and was in that house in Marion Square. Joyce's father was a different um, kettle of fish in that he was Catholic and that he was um, much more drinker around bars in O'Connell Street and Westmoreland Street and Dublin. He was a much more, he was a Cork man as well, so he had his roots in Cork. So Joyce's father would have, would have, would have been quite different. But Joyce, um, Joyce knew Yeats and Yeats knew Wilde. Okay. And so Yeats would have, uh, would have supported both Wilde and Joyce at various times in his life. So Yeats is a sort of central figure of the thing. Okay, and that's written? It's written, it's done. Okay, well, yes, done, yeah. looking forward to it, Colin. Thanks a million for talking okay, to thank us. You thank, you thank, much, you. thank you very much, thank you. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.